Well, good evening and uh, welcome to the Shine Dome for the second Fenner Lecture. Uh, my name's Andrew Lee and can I begin by acknowledging we're meeting in traditional lands, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Uh, it's a delight to have all of you here and in particular to have lots of kids in the audience. Uh, we wanted to make sure that tonight's lecture was accessible to those interested in science of all ages. Uh, so both Corolla and myself have both brought our children along this evening. Uh, who, as it happens, were in uh, ANU daycare together uh, back, in the, back in the day. Um, so thank you all for being here. Uh, my electorate used to be called Fraser until uh, Malcolm Fraser passed away and the powers that be decided that they needed to abolish the Jim Fraser seat so they could subsequently create a Malcolm Fraser seat in Victoria. Uh, as a result, we then got a new electorate called Fenner, after Frank Fenner. Frank Fenner is one of Australia's great scientists, somebody who worked on malaria, who announced the end of smallpox to the World Health Organisation, somebody who worked on myxomatosis, that most important uh, of diseases which helped wipe out the Australian uh, rabbit plague, or, or at least reduce it considerably. And when there was great concern over the prospects that myxomatosis might make the jump from rabbits to humans, Fenner stood in front of a large group like this, took a vial of myxomatosis, enough to kill a thousand rabbits, and injected himself in the arm. Kids, don't try this at home. <laughs> but it was the kind of scientist that Frank was. Somebody who was keen not just to do great bench research, but to make sure that his science was shaping the world. Last year we had Dr Carl deliver the first uh, Fenner lecture, and this year it's Carola Vinuessa. Carola is an extraordinary scientist, somebody who's already got a group named after her, who's been awarded the Science Minister's Prize for Life Science. She's the recipient of multiple grants and a plethora of awards. But none of it seems to have gone to her head. Uh, she is wonderfully ochre and down to earth, despite being born in Spain. She's somebody who's wonderfully modest about how she does her science. She's a serious science communicator and somebody who is working in the field of genetics, one of the most exciting and promising fields of science. We're going to hear from Corolla for about 45 minutes tonight, and then we'll throw it open for questions. We're going to give the first set of questions to the kids in the audience. Not quite sure how we define a kid. I'll, I'll just let you self-define on that. <laughs> and then throw it open more broadly if we still have time. Uh, Carolla has, uh, has aimed to, present a, to prepare a talk uh, which is accessible for those of you who know a lot about science and those of you who, like me, know very little. Uh, she is a rock star in the field, a tango dancer, somebody who loves life and is excited by science and by the prospect of sharing that science with you. Please join me in welcoming Carolla Vinuessa.
Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, and thanks to all of you for coming here tonight. I was uh, telling Andrew that uh, to ask a scientist to give a talk that is um, understandable by both children and non-scientists, adults, uh, is probably as challenging as finding cure for intractable diseases. So for me, it has been a challenge. Uh, we don't usually do this and we don't do it very well. So bear with me. I have tried my best to make it understandable. And I did run it by my 10-year-old daughter who is here tonight and she gave me a few tips of how to do it better. <laughs> so let me start by asking you to imagine a world if every child at birth was given a gift and this gift is a medicine, a medicine that would cure or even prevent the severe or chronic disease that baby would develop as a child or as an adolescent. That medicine would be given based on the baby's individual genetic makeup. And what is our genome or our genetic makeup? Our genome is a code of about three billion letters, combinations of letters like A, T, G, and C, that determines how our organs are made, are built. Organs like the heart, the liver, the joints, and the cells that make up all of these organs. So we now know that even a single letter change in these three billion letters that make our DNA, our genome, is sufficient to trigger sometimes very severe disease and, a, and an enormous constellation of symptoms and signs. Diseases that can be catastrophic can lead to early mortality. So, if this world, sorry, I'll tell you something else that we can imagine. So imagine that if not only the gift consists on, of a medicine, but the gift would also consist of some advice that we could give these babies, also based on their genetic makeup. We could tell some babies that they might have to avoid certain infections or be particularly cautious, or for example, avoid certain foods. Some babies might not, should perhaps not eat uh, uh, wheat or bread. For some, the advice might be that they have to be careful to have sufficient sun exposure because some diseases come about when you don't have enough sunlight. Others might be the opposite, beware of excessive sun exposure. Nearly every baby would be told never smoke. <laughs> so, if this world exists, this is what we will do. We will sequence the entire genome, the three billion letters in each baby's DNA at the time of birth. And we can do this with a drop of blood when they are born. But we will also sequence the parents of that baby because this will be important to understand where the genetic changes, the defects, come from. Not only that, we will also sequence hundreds of thousands of healthy elderly people around the world because it's very important that we understand what healthy genomes look like. And we will also seek, sorry, we will also sequence more 
Sikh people. At the, time, at the same time, we will collect information on the kind of exposures that all of these people have been uh, exposed to, the kind of infections they might have had throughout their life, the kind of diet, how much sun they have taken, whether they've smoked or drank alcohol. And all of this information will be informative for us to understand the kind of genes and the kind of lesions in the genes that cause disease, to understand what the proteins in which these, um, that, that these genes determine um, how they function, and to, with all of this information, to be able to come up with that medicine that selectively will cure each of these diseases in each of these babies when they develop disease. Now, I want to tell you that, of course, not every baby is going to develop one of these severe diseases. But the kind of diseases that I'm talking about, there's a long list, over 8,000 of these. And we know that most of these are caused by single genes. So the effort is important. So if we do all this, we will have an impact. First thing, which is obvious, we will decrease suffering and misery for many children that are otherwise very sick and lead pretty difficult lives, and we will have happier, healthier people with longer lives. But importantly, we will also save a lot of money, millions if not billions of dollars, money that we are now spending on unnecessary treatments, treatments that are expensive, that we know do not work, and that can be toxic. We will also save on unnecessary diagnostic tests that are invasive and still don't help us refine the diagnosis. We will save on the delay that it takes for us to start patients on treatment because we don't understand very well what's going on. And if we save all of this money, let me suggest that we can do at least two things with it. Of course, try and combat climate change. We want our children to have bearable living conditions, and we know that this is at the moment irreversible. And we can combat poverty, for example. So, can we do this? Well, this is not really such an imaginary world. We can do, and we are doing some of this. And not only us, but many people around the world are trying. And before I tell you how we do these things, I will tell you just a little bit about myself and where I come from. So, as Andrew said, I come from Spain, a country in Europe, and from Spain, right in the center of Spain, Madrid. This is the land of flamenco, the land of paella, beautiful Madrid. And this is where I studied medicine at the University Autónoma. So when I was finishing medicine, you know, I was at this age where we are all very idealistic, and I was thinking that I would really like to work and help uh, people in remote areas. I was thinking of developing countries where doctors were needed. And I did some voluntary work. First, I went to India, in Calcutta. And there I worked in a clinic for destitute people at the border of the Ganges, near a crematorium named Talagat. I worked in the surgical section where most of the patients uh, came because of um, leprosy lesions. 
And in the back there, you can see some of the Indian doctors who patiently took the histories of, of patients that also patiently queued up every day. Most of the problems were related with tuberculosis. You can see that patients are queued in the middle of the monsoon under pretty rough conditions. And we just debrided the, the lesions that some of these um, people came with. After India, I also spent some time in West Africa, in Ghana, where I worked with a primary healthcare project. And there, um, I spent some time in three villages near Winneba, halfway between Accra and Winneba, and some time also at Accra's uh, pediatric department in the, in the main hospital there. Um, most of what we did was in the villages was running immunization clinics. We also detected at the time um, um, there was a very prevalent infection with a parasite. We call that infection JAWS that was supposed to be eradicated, but it wasn't, so we ran a program to eradicate JAWS. And we also ran programs to train local people in um, family planning and in um, obstetric care. That's one of the most challenging things in remote places. So at the time I had decided that I wanted to work with an NGO like Doctors Without Borders. I thought that I would like to spend some years or part of my career in places like Africa. I had a wonderful experience. I actually made very good friends that I still keep to date. And for that I was recommended that I was advised that the best place to do the clinical training was the UK because you could get very in-depth and um, broad training in many different areas. So that's where I went. I went to England, and there I worked in a few different hospitals. I spent a year in the Wirral, where I did cardiovascular medicine and gastroenterology. I then went to Hereford, and there I worked in pediatrics, that's special care baby unit, and I did also obstetrics and gynecology, where I got my DRCOG, which I think is shared by <laughs> Cameron Weber here. And after that, I went to Birmingham, where I did some HIV and genital urinary medicine. And then I went back to Ghana and spent a bit more time there. These are my friends, William and Ben, two local doctors, very motivated. And um, it was clear at the time that, you know, there was an enormous number of pediatric or children mortality, kids dying from infections mainly, a lot of cerebral malaria, meningitis, and the problem was not necessarily that there was poor care, but it was that we just did not really understand how to treat these children because we did not really understand how the immune system really fights these infections. And to date, still a lot of things that we don't understand. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah, okay. So um, after that sense of frustration, I decided that perhaps it was worth spending a bit of time doing research and seeing what we could do to try and fight some of these infections. So I did a PhD uh, with a brilliant immunologist, Professor McLennan, precisely on the bacteria that cause meningitis and trying to understand how the immune system controls these infections that we call T-independent. And I actually loved doing research. I realized that probably I was more cut out to do research than clinical work. I didn't say it, but I found clinical medicine very stressful. So that was also part of my decision. 
Um, and I, I, I really wanted to spend my life doing research and I thought that also it was probably a useful way and a way that we could, if we made some important discoveries, we could also help a significant amount of people. So from there I had a, a Welcome Trust Fellowship that I could, I could come to a place like Australia, which was famous for its immunology. There is some, as you know, one of the largest concentrations of great immunologists in the world have come and are in Australia. So I came to Canberra, and this is our old John Curtin, and I did meet Frank Fenner during this early period. And he inspired me and many others, and taught us quite a few things. And this was the year 2000. Before I go on and tell you things about the science, I will tell you that I've been given two wonderful gifts while I've been in Australia. The first one is I became an Australian citizen, so Australia welcomes people like me and it makes us feel proud Australians. And I had my two beautiful daughters. <laughs> and this is a recent picture and they're here laughing. <laughs> so um, I can only be grateful to a lot of good things. So I'm, I'll tell you a little bit what I started working on. So in the immune system, you have both sides. If the immune system is underactive, you cannot fight off infections. But it's, importantly, it's equally important to understand what happens when the immune system is overactive. Sometimes there are the same lesions that are either excessively turned on or excessively turned off. And when the immune system is overactive, we get what we call autoimmune diseases. So these are diseases in which our own defense system, our own cells, turn off, turn on against our tissues and start destroying them. So instead of being activated against bacteria and viruses, they are activated when they see our own proteins. So an example, for example, is type 1 diabetes, in which our immune cells destroy cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. There are many other autoimmune diseases, you know, lupus, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, you name it. There are over 80 of these autoimmune diseases. And the sad thing is that, to date, there is not a single cure for any of these 80 diseases. So we do not have treatments. All we can do is treat the symptoms, try and give treatments that simply dampen the immune system. And while they may transiently, and in some patients, do make some difference, they tend to, very often, they, they fail to control the most serious manifestations, and often they can be quite toxic. And we don't have better treatments because we do not understand very well to date how these diseases come about. So I'm going to try and illustrate why this is so difficult by giving you two concrete examples of two patients that we've been trying to diagnose genetically. And here on the left, we've got a girl. Um, her name is Julia. Her real name is not Julia, but we're calling her Julia here for confidentiality. And she has a disease called lupus. Now, her disease started when she was two years old. And by the age of three, she had already developed a stroke, you know? a brain infarct. Sorry about this, don't know why it's turning on and off. But she also suffered from joint inflammation. Now, the case of Carmen on your right, she also has lupus, but she presents with very different symptoms. Her disease is mainly affecting her kidneys and her heart. 
So you can see how even for the one disease that called lupus, you can have patients presenting with very different symptoms, which in many cases could reflect that there are different pathways that cause disease, different causes for the one disease, different genes that are mutated, different proteins that are faulty. So the problem with this type of patients and with Julian Carmen is that we don't really know what to give them or what will make each of their diseases better. So what we do is treat them blindly with one drug <coughs> after the other until one, if we are lucky, makes a difference. Now, as I've told you, some of these drugs can be toxic and they still fail to cure the disease. So how have we gone about trying to understand disease from a research point of view? Well, at the beginning, and for me the beginning is when I arrived in Canberra, the year 2000, we couldn't do what would have been ideal. We couldn't look at the genome of these patients because there was no draft sequencing of the human genome and there was no possibility of even attempting to sequence human genomes. So what we did is try and mimic mutations, introduce mutations into mice. Believe it or not, mice have an immune system that's not that different from humans, so we can study most of the immune functions in mice. So we treated mice with a chemical that we knew introduced random mutations, which we hoped some of them might mimic the ones that patients have. And we screened the mice to see which developed diseases, like the ones we were interested in. So indeed, we found mice that developed diseases like human lupus. And we worked to find which were the genes and the mutations that were causing disease in the mice. And with that information, we learned about the immune system. We actually learned a lot of very important things and of very exciting things. We've, along all of these years, we've discovered important secrets of the immune system, new cell types, mechanisms by which cells communicate and talk to each other, by which T cells, for example, help B cells, two important cells in the immune system, make antibodies. And this has been exciting, has led to opening new fields. Some of these discoveries are being applied to not just understanding disease, but um, trying to develop new strategies to treat disease. But the reality is that these type of experiments, even though we did find drugs that would cure the mice, in most cases, and there are exceptions, these drugs that cure the mice did not cure the humans. So there was a block in this translation from mouse to human. And there could be quite a few different issues, but part of the problem is that the mutations that cause the disease in mice are probably not the mutations that cause the disease in humans. So, what if, this is what we thought, what if we could then directly sequence then the genome of these patients and go direct to the real cause so we can understand what are the lesions and then develop the drugs or the medicines that would cure the humans? Well, what seemed unthinkable at the time, 15 years ago, became possible. And it became possible through blue sky research. And I, I want to emphasize this because a lot of the big progress in medicine has been through basic science. And there was a discovery that was very important, which was a completely new way of sequencing DNA, which made sequencing DNA much faster and much cheaper so much so that it became affordable. 
we call this next generation sequencing. So it became, as I say, fast. It took 15 years and nearly 3 billion US dollars in 1991 to, or start calculated in 1991, to sequence the first human genome. Can you imagine? Many countries around the world in the same one effort of one genome, okay? So now we can do single human genomes in a matter of days, less than a week, and for a fraction of the cost for $1,000. Still expensive, but compared with all of the diagnostic tests some of these kids will have and the delays in treatment, this is really a very, very um, small expenditure. So this coincided with a time where we had a new brand, a brand new John Curtin School of Medical Research, which appropriately has this beautiful shape of a DNA helix. And it did celebrate these advances in genetics because in nearly every wall of our school we have the genome printed in different ways with the letters that I've told you about and lots of beautiful images. So it became possible to do exactly that. We took a blood sample from Julia, we sequenced her entire genome, and we found a single letter mutated in her DNA that we thought could explain disease. But we went further, we tested the protein that was mutated to actually prove that it caused disease, and we understood how it caused disease. Now this case was relatively straightforward because the protein that we found mutated was a protein that we knew how it worked. It was an enzyme that normally degrades DNA. So for us it was, we didn't have to do too much to convince ourselves that this was the cause of the disease. And because we understood it, we could recommend a treatment for Julia. Now this treatment unfortunately is still in clinical trials and it hasn't been released, but we are hopeful that Julia will be put on a more specific treatment soon. And this is a little bit more the case of Julia with a little bit more detail. I just want to show you the brain scan. You can see here how there is a block in this middle cerebral artery, so you don't get blood flow to this part of the brain. And this was the, co the cause of her stroke. And this were, you can see here how this is the only child in the family that has two copies of the mutated gene. And this work was done by a talented senior researcher, um, Julia Elliott the John Curtin. So, let me tell you about a more difficult case, which are the kind of cases that we very often encounter. This is the case of Carmen. So we went and sequenced her genome as well, and we found, again, a single letter mutated in a gene that we thought could be a great candidate for causing the disease. But there is yet not any human being that has been found to have a mutation in this gene and have a disease like lupus, and we don't completely understand how this protein works. So we thought, how can we really prove it? And how can we be convinced that this protein is the cause of disease? Because if we could, again, we could start a much better treatment. So here we thought, well, we will need to do quite a few experiments. We can't just model an enzyme in a Petri dish. What we would really like to have is an animal model that has a similar mutation to the one that Carmen has. Well, again, what seemed unthinkable a few years ago, even just five years ago, is again now possible thanks to another remarkable blue sky research discovery. And this is the discovery of a bacterial defense system that we call CRISPR. 
So some talented scientists discovered that bacteria have a way of defending themselves against invading viruses. And they can recognize specific sections in the DNA of these viruses. And once they recognize them, they can cut the viral DNA to protect themselves. Well, it then became obvious that scientists could use that information to design similar mechanisms of cutting DNA so long as that bacterial enzyme that the system works with, called Cas9, is present. And this has revolutionized what we can do in science. This has really had, and I'm going to tell you a few examples at the end. So basically what I'm telling you now is that in a very cheap and fast way, we can select any letter in the genome and cut at that precise location and even substitute the defective letter with the one we want. So we could apply this technique, again called CRISPR, to generate the same mutation that Carmen has in a mouse model. So we now have basically the mouse model of Carmen's disease. And through understanding how that protein, that mutation, causes disease in the mouse, we will be in a much better place to try and find which is the best drug that can cure that disease. And we have some information. We are working on this case. There's a PhD student that is very actively trying to understand how this works. So one of our worries is that this approach will be far too costly for developing countries, which also lack the type of research infrastructure that you need for the genetic analysis I've been telling you. And here I'm highlighting some of the most potent sequencing machines around the world. And of course, you cannot have these machines in other places. The other worry is that this process is still slow because it's not just sequencing genomes, it's understanding how these proteins work. And there are other obstacles as well, which is, I've told you some of the most simple cases. You know, one mutation explains the disease. But we do know that in some cases, not just one mutation. There's two mutations in two different genes working together. It can be three. So the chances that any two patients with the same disease will have the same genetic lesion is actually quite low. So is this a problem? Should we be worried about this? Well, we are fairly optimistic, and again, cautiously optimistic, I would say. But we do think that once we have understood some extreme severe cases, like that of Carmen and Julia, we will have also identified along the way unique characteristics of each of their diseases. And this could be, for example, an excessive amount of a particular protein in the blood or an abnormal cell type. We call these biomarkers. Something that tells you that a particular disease is being caused by the mutation that we know was present in Julia or Carmen. So once we have identified these biomarkers, we might be able to start treatment without having to sequence the genome in other patients. So the hope, and it's being applied in some cases, is that in all of these countries that do not have the possibility of genetic sequencing, and even in places like Australia, once we can screen these patients for these biomarkers that tell us that we are dealing with a particular pathway, and then identify the patients that share that biomarker and treat them with the medicine that we know works without, again, sequencing their genome. 
So this is the circular approach we are taking. Just as a reminder, we start with the patient now, and this has been the serious or important change from what we used to do before. We used to start with mice. Now we start with the patient. We sequence the genome. We look for the best candidates that would, could explain disease. In some cases, we can directly prove that those candidates cause disease. In others, we have to generate better models to understand how disease comes about. We then find biomarkers or unique characteristics to this genetic lesion in both the patient and the mouse model. And we can then trial drugs that we think might be specific for this pathway. This is what we do at the Center for Personalized Immunology. You've got a website there if you want to find out a little bit more. And then we apply this information to larger cohorts, which we screen for the biomarkers we've identified along the way. So this is the basis of the activity that the CPI runs. It's been funded as an NHMRC center for research excellence based here at the ANU, John Curtin School of Medical Research. We not only deal with autoimmune diseases, we are also dealing with a range of immune deficiencies and primary inflammatory diseases. And we're very fortunate to have this work supported by major government-supported infrastructure increase. Here at the ANU, we have um, the National Computational Infrastructure Facility that hosts the largest supercomputer in the Southern Hemisphere which allows us to analyze hundreds of genomes and compare them at very high speeds. We also are fortunate to have the Australian Phenomics Facility, which allows us to develop all of these new models that I was telling you, animal models, but also other types of models, and now a state-of-the-art CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing facility. So we've gone a step further We've now taken this to the clinic, and this is thanks to an investment by ACT Health of $7 million, over $7 million, to implement genomic medicine in Canberra. So this was based on the pipeline that we had built for the CPI, and it's led by my close collaborator and colleague, Professor Matthew Cook, who is also um, a, a clinical immunologist at the Canberra Hospital. So how does this Canberra Clinical Genomics Service works? Well, patients, generally those patients with severe disease, particularly children, but not only children, also certain cancers, can be entered into this uh, workflow. Their genomes of these patients are sequenced. And in many cases, a clinical diagnosis is reached. Those cases in which there is no clinical diagnosis and are immune relevant, feed into our discovery pipeline so we can try and understand and refine the diagnosis. So I want to tell you about a couple of other cases and also I think they illustrate nicely some of the issues that I'm talking to you about. This is a case of a girl that was diagnosed when she was a young teenager, 13 years old, and she, she presented with a constellation of, of symptoms and vague signs of immune dysregulation. And I don't want to read all of these. I'm just putting all that information to show you that throughout the last eight years, she has had multiple visits and hospitalizations, 
many different provisional diagnoses. She's gradually deteriorated. When she presented last at 21 years, she had lost a lot of weight, chronic diarrhea, problems with chronic cough, lung disease, and again, a range of diagnoses. So she was sequenced last year um, at our center, and we found a novel mutation in a gene called CTLA4, which explains a rare syndrome that has only been recently discovered. Now, this is a beautiful example because there is already a treatment out there that specifically targets CTLA4. And this is something that we are quite fortunate in immunology because over the years, there's been a very big range of drugs that modulate the immune system. So sometimes we don't have to look very far. The drug is out there. It was designed for a different purpose. It could have been designed to treat cancers or to help some other problem. But in this case, this patient responded beautifully to this drug. So some of these patients with this type of mutations respond to the drug, others don't. So this girl responded. And then I'll tell you another beautiful case which is related to this one, and the importance of communication. So I was lucky to have Madrid's main TV channel come to Canberra, and they interviewed a few people from Madrid. So I think they just got a list from the embassy, and I was fortunate to be interviewed, and they dedicated 20 minutes to what I was doing in Canberra. So besides taking them to see a few sites, I took this TV channel to the John Curtin and told them what we were doing. And they interviewed a few people in the lab. And they explained that we were trying to understand autoimmune diseases and we had this personalized immunology center. So the day after the program was aired in Madrid, I got a call from a worried father with a case that also sounded very severe. And this is a child that from 15 months of age started with immune problems, first type 1 diabetes, and then a series of clinical problems. Again, this kid has now lost a lot of weight. He's very unwell. So sent the, I asked them to have the blood collected through a colleague of mine who I'm collaborating with in Madrid, who has ethics to do this. And the kid was bled, and the blood was sent to us. And actually, only a couple of Sundays ago, I was very excited at home. <laughs> My kids sometimes don't understand why I get so excited when I look at multiple Excel sheets of millions of mutations. I tend to do that in planes, and <laughs> Kira helps me. She now knows what I'm looking for. And the beauty is that this kid had another mutation in the same gene, CTLA4 again. So this child is now going to be, going to be studied in Abatacept. Now, this child is not a child anymore. He's 20 years of age. He's had innumerable tests. and treatments and different diagnoses. Now, so, so you can see how a single genetic test could really accelerate diagnosis, save suffering, save treatments, save cost. So we are also fortunate to participate in a national effort. This is called the Australian Genomic Health Alliance. It's an effort led by the Murder Children Research Institute in Melbourne. The Australian government awarded a 25 million grant to study how to implement genomic medicine in Australia, and different um, centers were invited to participate. From the ANU, we contribute significantly to two of the programs. The bioinformatics program, our CPI center, has developed a national gene variant phenotype patient database. So the database we are using is now going to be implemented nationally to analyze the genome of patients, and I'll show you an example in a moment. 
And there is also a few disease flagships. There is a rare disease flagship for which um, six diseases have been chosen as proof of principle that this genome, genomic medicine might work. One of these is immune diseases of childhood. And again, this flagship is led from the ANU um, by my colleague, um, Dr. Professor Matthew Cook. So we are contributing to a national effort to try and see how can we implement and bring about genetic diagnosis and personalized medicine to Australians. So this is the national database that uh, we started from um, sequencing the very first few patients. We have now sequenced over a thousand patients and collected, and this is just from the CPI effort, and collected over 38 million variants in the genomes of all these patients. This database allows us to search in multiple ways to find the mutations that we are interested in, apply all sorts of filters, compare genomes from patients with the same disease, with different diseases, and bring in the clinical and phenotypic information from all of these diseases, uh, patients. What is more, we have now linked this database with international efforts, first with an effort that we are ourselves conducting in China. We have now um, started a center in China and we've sequenced several hundred patients. This is thanks to one of uh, China uh, Thousand Foreign Talent program. Um, I was fortunate to have been awarded one of these fellowships last year. So with my long-term collaborator, Professor Nan Shen, we started the sister center of um, the Australian CPI, but with a, a focus on China and on some of the diseases that are more prevalent in China. So we are based at Renji Hospital in Shanghai, and this is a very old hospital, the oldest Western hospital in, um, in Shanghai, and just the patient catchment area in that single hospital is bigger than the whole of Australia. And this is important because some of these diseases that we are talking about, as you have seen, are very rare. And sometimes having a single case with one gene mutated doesn't give you sufficient confidence to believe that that is the cause of the disease. But as soon as you have two patients, in, even in two different parts of the world, that have the same disease with a mutation in the same gene, then we are much more confident to know that that probably is the real cause of disease. So we've started and uh, we are pretty excited with what we are doing there. It's not been completely easy, but it's getting much easier. This gave me the opportunity to spend three months there earlier this year with my daughters and my family. And we had a great time. My daughters went to school in Shanghai. But importantly, we could use this opportunity to start up a laboratory. We now have several full-time staff and students working there. And uh, we've now sequenced the first um, um, hundred or well nearly several hundred genomes from patients uh, in Renji Hospital and we're starting to make the first few discoveries. I also want to point out that the ability to have this large infrastructure also enables what we call big data science. We can now develop new tools and we have invested quite a bit of effort in developing new tools like for example what we call this rare variant explorer which at an amazing speed allows us to compare hundreds of genomes at the same time, and we can ask important questions that before were really difficult to answer, such as tell us what ethnic differences 
you can, or the program can automatically detect between different cohorts, not just ethnic differences, but difference in the way the patients have been sequenced, differences in the platforms. So I think the importance of be, to be able to bring together not just infrastructure, but different collections from around the world is exceptional to understand what this genetic variation looks like. And our effort has not just been to establish a network with China, but we now also have um, solid networks with other countries in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, also in other places in the world like Oman, Argentina. So um, I also wanted to touch on the importance of working with industry, and we have now building, uh, been building links, links with local industry like CSL, who are helping us to develop new drugs in some of the pathways that we are discovering. And for example, Genentech, who is supporting part of the exercise in developing new preclinical models. We've placed quite a bit of emphasis on educating, training the next generation and the current generation of clinicians and researchers in genomic medicine. This is something that probably cannot wait. And we've run two schools of personalized immunology open to uh, everybody, basically. We run the first one from Canberra and the second one from Melbourne. And we can do more. And I want to give you a taste of other things that are coming and that are happening in other parts of the world and we are hoping to start doing them here. I told you about CRISPR and how we can introduce a mutation in a mouse. Well, we can actually also edit the genomes of our own cells, of human cells, adult cells. And we can do this to cure disease. And there are some nice examples where this is already happening. And I'll tell you one, for example. It has already been done. If you take immune cells from the blood of a patient with cancer, for example, lung cancer, you can cut using CRISPR or disable one of the genes that makes immune cells be exhausted, too tired to fight the tumor. If you do this and put the cells back into the patient, these cells will be better at fighting the patient's own cancer. So it can be a very simple way of treating without having to give toxic chemotherapy. You can also potentially prevent disease and prevent infections. So something that's been done experimentally is for example use CRISPR to remove the gene that encodes the receptor for HIV. It's a gene called CCR5. So if you remove that receptor, you could have patients that become resistant to being infected. Completely new way of thinking about protecting people from disease. You can also edit the genomes, not just of humans, but of parasites. If you, for example, prevent the mosquitoes that carry the parasites that transmit, that, that cause malaria, from reproducing, if you cripple critical genes in reproduction of these mosquitoes, we are going to lower the transmission of diseases like malaria. Now, people think that probably mosquitoes will find a way to um, become resistant to this, but there's intense research in this respect at the moment. You could also edit the DNA of the viruses that cause the infections themselves. And there's been some very nice studies in mice infected with HIV in which researchers have used CRISPR to cut 
the DNA of the HIV virus so that it cannot replicate. And some of these mice have been completely cured from HIV. So potentially this could be applied. Now the problem so far is that this technique is still not perfect. It's not completely accurate. It can target what we want it to target, but often it targets other sites. By accident, it could cut in other places. So this is sufficient risk to think very carefully about when to use this. And there's a lot of intense research to find other enzymes that might be a little bit more accurate. But we think that in the foreseeable future, these advances could be, could be made. Now, the most controversial area is using this genome editing to edit the genome of reproductive cells, cells like the sperm, the eggs, the early embryos. The problem with this is that on the one hand, we could eliminate completely disease, but on the other hand, those changes are going to be heritable. They're not going to be occurring exclusively in the organism we introduce them in, them in, in this particular embryo, for example. Because they occur in the reproductive cells, they are going to be transmitted forever to the descendants. So this poses a risk if something goes wrong. We are tinkering with evolution. And we come into the area that's a little bit gray. What is a justifiable intervention? What is a disease that would justify doing this editing? And where are we looking into conditions that perhaps might not be so clearly justifiable? And even people speculate in the area of eugenics, you know, trying to generate traits that will make humans uh, faster, or better looking. So the problem is that this technique I've told you it's cheap, it's simple, it's not complicated. Many people could do it. So it needs to be very tightly regulated and there's a lot of discussion around the world on what uses would be acceptable and how to regulate it. Some countries are banning uses for, um, in embryos um, uh, completely. Others are allowing uh, editing in embryos just for research. And um, we will see where, what happens in this field. So what, are, what is our vision? Here at the ANU, we already have a center that can perform genetic diagnosis and um, in some cases identify more targeted treatment. We would like to go towards therapy and be able to, in the near, not so near future, depending on how the technology evolves, to be able to do DNA editing-based therapy. So just to summarize, we know that solving disease requires a genomic approach, big data, skill sets across a number of areas, national and international approach. We need to be able to keep up with technology development, collaborate with industry, and we desperately need strategic long-term investment, such as the one that has been provided by Encris, but sustained, such as the one that hopefully is coming through and started to come through this um, MRFF, NHMRC, locally. So to finish, I just want to thank those that have made this possible. And it is a long list of people, and I couldn't really capture all the people, but I'll show you first the main or the 10 chief investigators from the Center for Personalized Immunology, which are not just local. Um, I would like to highlight Matthew Cook, who is the co-director of the center. Dan Andrews, who has led the bioinformatics effort. 
together with Matt Field and all of these uh, great researchers, not just from Canberra, but Sydney, Melbourne, and overseas Germany and the US. I would also like to acknowledge the many young group leaders that are working here in Canberra at the ANU and within Canberra Hospital to lead all the projects that I'm talking about. These are all middle career researchers, talented, enthusiastic, which will be the next generation of brilliant doctors and researchers that will move this field forward. I want to acknowledge the PhD students. These students are all working with some of the cases that I've mentioned. Typically, one patient can make a PhD if the protein is unknown and we have to discover how it works and the pathways. So these students work tirelessly and night and day to try and understand how these diseases come about. We have a long list of supporting staff that do this complicated bioinformatics, generate these new tools, these databases. Phil Wu in particular has been a leader in this national patient database. I'm sorry because I couldn't capture everybody here. I know Yafe is somewhere in the audience and she's done a magnificent job with all the sequencing. Our nurses, and marie and Anastasia, clinical liaison officers, Vivian with her support to Phil's work. And last but not least, our CPI advisory board because they have pushed us, they have helped us, they have supported us, helped us raise funding, taking us in the right direction. I would like to emphasize the role of our chairman, Mr. Peter Yates, Nicole Philly, who was a very strong advocate for setting up Canberra Clinical Genomics, and then Keith Nelms, Oliver Mayo, Simon Foote, Sumik, and Virginia Pasquale. Simon Foote is also the director of the John Curtin, and he has also supported us in important ways along the way. And the very last, and the most important one, in my view, has been Ed Bertram, who has himself a PhD in immunology, but also an MBA, and has the vision, the experience, and the knowledge to set up these large, big international centers and help us with all the details that us scientists lose track of. And without him, I don't think we would have all of these networks, national, international, or a center, really. So thanks, Ed, he's here today. And thanks, Caitlin, as well, for her support. Very last, I also want to acknowledge the funding. So we have significant funding from the NHMRC, ACT Health, increased supports in many different ways what we do. I mentioned the China program, Australian Genomics Health Alliance, CSL, and Genentech. And I did promise my daughter that I would include her last slide. <laughs> she made it for me and she put up with me and she corrected and I, <laughs> helped me practice the talk. So there you are. Thank you, Carla. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, uh, we've come to the end of what I think you'll agree with me was a, a fascinating lecture. Uh, I wanted to, uh, to ask you to join with me in thanking the extraordinary Carola Vanessa, who's uh, taken us today on uh, a tour through genetics, through her extraordinary career working as a paediatrician, working in, uh, in uh, Ghana and in India, uh, and through building this extraordinary research team here. Uh, Carola, I don't think, is about to disappear, although she does have a couple of children to look after. Mm -hmm. So if you'd like to come up for a selfie or an autograph afterwards, please feel, <laughs> please feel free. Uh, and join me once more in thanking Carola.